Well, all right. If you have uh, your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to pretty much every page in it. Uh, I feel like that's where we're going to end up today. Uh, but if you like specifically a good spot to turn, First uh, Peter chapter one is going to be a good one. We hit first. Uh, in fact, it, it was very much like last week. Uh, it was easier just to tell you all the passages we're going to go through than uh, tell you to turn and put your fingers in one and the other. So uh, today, what we're going to do is we're going to put our final touches on. Uh, a series that we've been calling Count the Cost, and, and it is very cleverly titled uh, in the sense that when we open up Luke 14, there's this scene as Jesus is leaving uh, a dinner that he's having with some uh, Pharisees. It says a great crowd followed him, and then Jesus tell, looks at him and he says, hey, if you want to follow me, let me talk to you about some of the cost that's involved. And... And when we read it, we think of it as very difficult terms or, or hard terms of what it looks like to follow Him. In fact, He'll say uh, things like, uh, unless you hate your father and mother and your children and yourself, you can't follow Me. And we had to, uh, in week one, try to reconcile what He means by that, simply saying, there is no greater love than the love you would have for Me if you are to follow Me. Uh, and then He'll say, you know, uh, you, you can't follow me unless you're willing to uh, carry your cross uh, daily. And that what we said is, you know, that's, that's identifying each and every day that my life is about what Jesus has accomplished for me on the cross. And my life becomes about this megaphone of who he is. And then uh, lastly, he gets to the end of this, this section and he says, unless you're willing to renounce all, you can't follow me. And... And so we were been trying to wrestle with that and, and in the middle of giving us these three requirements, which the Bible gives us much more, but in these three, in the middle of it, he says, he says, you count the cost. He says, none of you would build a tower and then without first saying, hey, if I start this tower, can I finish building it, right? Just like if you were to build a house, you don't want to, uh, you kind of need the whole house if you're going to pay the whole mortgage, right? Uh, and so... He says, you count that. He says, he says, no king goes to war with 10,000 men without first finding out if his opponent has 20,000 men. And if so, then he seeks terms of peace. And what, what happens here in this scene is that we are brought to this line of Jesus saying, when you follow me, you don't do so casually. You don't. He says, you count the cost, I know, it's real. I would like it easier too. Um, but he says, you count the cost of what it looks like to follow me. And, and we've said this, that, uh, that, that Jesus has been sent by the love of the Father to be two vital roles in our lives. Uh, that he would come in and he would first be our Savior, right? That because God loves us, he saves me from my sin. And then secondly, that Jesus would be our Lord. That because He loves us, He leads us. And now in faith, we believe He leads us to the healthiest, most joy-filled places we can ever go. And, and so, so what we find when we pay attention in these moments where Jesus talks about His role in our lives is that, is that it's not an either-or proposition. 
Jesus doesn't say, hey, you can have me as Savior, but don't worry about having me as Lord. He comes in and he says, I want to be very honest with you as we get going, that when it comes to your life and my life, the demand of the gospel is all of you for all of me. That the free gift of God is Jesus, but following God involves counting the cost. Walking with Jesus involves counting the cost. And so hopefully what, what we've been able to explain over these few weeks uh, is that, that though this exchange must be considered, uh, that, that if we're seeing Jesus properly, if we're seeing how Jesus is being portrayed and magnified in the Word, then we see Him as a great treasure. In fact, it's, it's such a great treasure that you say, I can have nothing else in my life but have this treasure and it's more than enough. It's more than enough. That There should be no reluctance in pursuing Jesus since we see how surpassing His great worth is. That the exchange of our life for His always, 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 always ends in our benefit. That when Jesus says, I give, I lay my life down for you, we benefit. Always. And so, so in turn, our lives become about the proclamation of the gospel uh, and this, this modeling of His great worth in, in how we live and how we treat each other and how we treat the rest of the world and how we treat ourselves. And so, so what happens is if you feel uncomfortable talking about Jesus or if you feel awkward about living in a certain way for Christ, then what, what's happening is that we realize there's a heart issue that Jesus perhaps isn't both Savior and Lord, that maybe we've done some religious movements and we've tried to accept Him for less than what He has told us, less than for who He has told us He has come to be. And so, so where, where I want us to land at the end of the series is I want us to take a look at our pursuit of holy living, or, or for instance, uh, for holiness. And so, so since Jesus is our great treasure... Right? Uh, since He is better than our spouses and our kids and our jobs and our toys. Right? No. We could just stop there and ask that simple question. Right? Is Jesus part of your great treasure or is He your great treasure? Because you realize that you should love Jesus more than your spouse. Okay? In fact, that's the only way my spouse has not left me is that she loves Jesus more than she loves me. That, that in some of you are like, <laughs> no, for real, that's the truth. That's, that's gospel truth for you. That we can have incredible kids that we love deeply, but they can't become Jesus to us. Our careers can be purposeful and they can, they can say something about God, but they can never become the ultimate pursuit of our lives because they can never satisfy us in the ways that, we, that Jesus can. And so, so when we ask that question, is Jesus our great treasure? Hopefully what we're going to see this morning is, is something much more than having a conversation. Because uh, when it comes down to holiness, usually we talk about um, what do I need to stop doing and what do I need to start doing? And we create these lists of things. And what I'm hoping we're able to see this morning is something much more than just a conversation about not sinning or managing desires. Uh, hopefully what we're going to be able to see this morning is God's heart for you and for me as He is transforming us 
into something beautiful as he transforms us into the image of his son. So let's, let's pray and then we'll get going. Father, we come to you. And we thank you that you are great. We thank you that, that the breath that we get to sing to you comes from you. And what we pray this morning as we talk about counting the cost when it comes to holiness, that, that we would be very mindful of your Spirit's teaching today. That we would be challenged by Him. That for some, we would be drawn to repentance. And for others, we would be drawn to celebration. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Alright, so uh, anytime we, we try to use one word, we need to define it. Uh, because there's the possibility that we might not all have the same understanding. And so, so when we tell, let's talk about the word holy very quickly, uh, because it's a, it's a very simple definition for a very complex application. Uh, and so, so when we say that we are to be holy people, we simply mean that we have been set apart for a great purpose. Okay, We've been set apart for a great purpose. Our lives are to look different than an unbelieving world. When we, when we walk through the Bible, this is what we find. Uh, and, and this is why we spent a good amount of time early on in this series asking whether the pursuits of our lives blend in with the community around us or if there's a distinct manner of our living that, that other people can see. And this is why Christians are, by definition, people who look like Jesus. Uh, and as we talk about that, that Jesus was set apart uh, for a great purpose. And so if we are like him, it means our freedom is found in him. Then our manner of living is to be set apart. It's to be set apart. And so all throughout the Bible, we find these instructions about uh, of to pursue holiness. And one place I want us to go in particular, because I think it highlights it very well, is First Peter chapter 1. Uh, and Lawson, you have that. We're going to jump in verse 13. Uh, Peter has said something significant. Because, how do we know that? Because he starts 13 with the word therefore, right? So that's your homework. Just read that a little bit. All right. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then he says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who uh, called you is holy, you also be holy in... What's the next word? All. Okay, just to make sure we're all reading the same page. In all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And, and I love these words because... Uh, we, what we get in it is a hope, we get a what, and we get a why. Uh, and, and so verse 13 talks about the posture of our lives uh, as we set our hope in that one day Jesus is returning for a final victory. Uh, and that when he returns, it's all over. It's all over, and his reign lasts forevermore. And, and so, so the Bible tells us many places to be uh, prepared at all times for this great moment. And so we prepare our minds and we remain in sober judgment and hope that we get to see the return of Christ. And, uh, and this is our hope because uh, it is set in the future. And by faith, 
we believe it to be true. And so verse 14 gives us a what. Okay? So, so what are we supposed to be doing in preparation? And because of the difference that Jesus has made in our life, because He has rescued us from sin and He gives us purpose as He leads us as Lord, Peter just simply says, don't go back to living in the sins that once enslaved us. He says, you don't, don't go back to it. Don't go back to your, the passions of your former ignorance. He says, we've been informed so we don't return to that. And then verse 15 talks about why. And here's what I love. Cause I, I love this in my own life. That I don't mind when someone tells me something to do. I just like to know why they're telling me to do it. Right? And so I love these moments in the Bible where, where we're given an instruction and then it's immediately followed with why. And it's not because I told you so. Right? Anybody love that? Like, hey, why do you want me to do that? Because I said so. I'm like, well, I don't like you right now. And so I don't know if I want to do what you've told me to do. And so... so Peter tells us that, that we don't return to sinful actions because the one who has freed you is set apart. So as we follow him, we are set apart in our, in our way of living. And so because of the holiness of Jesus, we pursue holy living. That's, that's the connection. And again, simple definition, complex application. And so, so typically... When the, when the conversation regards holiness, it's, it's not one we really long to discuss, right? Uh, just like when you got here last week and you opened up talk notes and it says counting the cost of my suffering, you're like, hmm, good, what I wanted to hear this morning. So you get here this morning and you say counting my cost and my pursuit of holiness and you're like, all right, two weeks in a row, let's go at it. And I think when we talk about holiness, the issue is we frame the conversation poorly. We do. In fact, uh, when the topic on the table is holiness, we, we, think, about, we think about it in regards to, to avoiding the wrath of God as opposed to walking in the love of God. And, and so, so we, we will tend to spotlight holiness against our own sinfulness. And what happens is, is we walk away very defeated because we realize that we can never match up to the Father's expectations. We can't. We, we, and when we do that, really what we're doing is we're ignoring the righteousness of Christ. Um, but, so we'll leave moments like the one we're sharing this morning and, and we'll try to do harder to not sin. Uh, we'll, we'll try to make a list of things that, that need to be worked on. We, we'll try to pray prayers for God to immediately fix us, right? So, so we'll wrap up here in a prayer and you'll be like, God, fix me before I walk out the door, please. Right? Make me more holy right now. And it's a really immature approach to walking in holiness. And, and so what, what I hope we can do this morning is, is frame, frame this conversation in a productive way. Uh, and, and I'm thankful for the voice of a guy named John Bloom. Uh, who, who his teaching on holiness helps largely shape much of what I'm about to share with you. Um, and so, so as we talk about holiness, let's ask this question, okay? When have you been most free from sin? Think about it. When have you been most free 
from sin? When, when have you been least motivated by selfish ambition and laziness and, and self-righteousness? When, when has the cares of this world willed the least influence over you? When, when have you felt the most capacity to love others and be more concerned for those who are far from God? In other words, in other, when, when has your life been most characterized by holiness? And, and, I, and I know the answer because I know this to be true in my life, that, that I am most characterized by holy living when I am most in love with Jesus. It's the way it's always worked that way. When my heart is close to Jesus, I live most holy. And, and so, so it's, it's when... I have been made most full of faith in Him, His promises, the price that He has paid, His invitation to adventure with Him, that I get to live more freely for Him. And so, so it, it, it's when His gospel has been most meaningful and His mission has been most compelling that it dictates the priorities in my life. In other words, we are most holy when we are most happy in God. That's the way this plays out. In fact, John Bloom says this, holiness is fundamentally an affection issue, not a behavioral one. That, that, that it's not that our behaviors don't matter because they matter a lot. It's just that our behaviors are symptomatic, that they are the outworking of our affections in the same way that our behaviors are the outworkings of our faith. And so, so for many Christians... Uh, holiness is, has this largely negative connotation uh, because they know, we know, that holiness is a good thing because God is holy, right? And, and we know that it's something that we should be because God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's verse 16 in First Peter, right? And really, Peter is just ripping off uh, Leviticus because it says, Straight out there, you shall be holy because I am holy. And so what happens is we think of holiness primarily in terms of denial or, or a sterile existence. And in fact, uh, God's holiness is something that we tend to fear more than uh, desire. And, and, so, and it makes sense, especially if, if what we've been taught is emphasized in, in behavioral holiness rather than affectional Holiness. In fact, the, the Old Testament, you read through the Old Testament and you get a picture of God and it's easy to get a picture of a, of a God who is just mean at times. And it's because we don't have a proper understanding of what holiness looks like. And so we'll get to these places when God calls Moses in Exodus 3 uh, and delivers the people of Israel that it's clear that His holiness was nothing to be trifled with. In fact, breaking His holiness, it was lethal uh, and and if it was ignored and if it was neglected, also uh, eight of the the nine, arguably nine of the ten commandments are restrictions. Right? You shall not. And then, if you want some good, just fun, easy, light reading, right? Go spend some time in in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And and what you find is that the overall emphasis we get is that the expectation to be God's chosen people was an expectation to maintain holiness before God. And then a severe warning if it wasn't. 
if it wasn't. But, but while that impression of holiness is understandable, it's very wrong, guys. It's very wrong. Because holiness is neither denial nor is it the sterile purity. We, we need to remember why God instituted all of those rules and all of those ceremonial laws to begin with. And Paul gives us a hint about it in, in Romans chapter 7. And it says this, that the law was given to us in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's it. So why does God give us this law? Why does God tell us to live in a certain way? Why do we have to appease the law? It's so that we would understand when sin is shown to be sin. So a little further back, and I think we have this one, uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says this, What then shall we say that, that the law is sin? And he says, By no means, exclamation point, by no means. Yet if it had been, had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So, so all the prohibitions and all the warnings that we find in the Bible, okay? Now this is going to sound weird to some of you, but they are all gracious mercies that are extended to us by God. All of them are gracious mercies because God wants us to know what our biggest problem is and how deep it goes. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, For I do not understand my, my own actions. I love this because this is where I'm like, yes, I think Paul and I could at least have one conversation about life. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good, so... So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is, our, this is our biggest problem. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Anybody else? Anybody? No? Just me. Gotcha. It's cool. It's cool. So God wants us to know the horrific consequences of our greatest problem. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, he says, Put to death, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, uh, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And then God wants us to know how hopeless we are to make ourselves holy. Paul says it in Romans chapter 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And He does all of this to point us to this glorious solution that God has provided to our biggest problem. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We could spend years in here, I'm telling you. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, listen, this is a beautiful story for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died 
for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. By His life. So, so God emphasizes our unholiness. God emphasizes our sinful state so that we can escape its grip and its consequences. That's what it's about. And we can know the full joy of living in the abundant and the satisfying goodness of God's holiness. So, so we must understand that the nature and the seriousness of our disease in order to pursue and receive the right kind of treatment. And so if we want to know the essence of holiness, what we, we, we need to look in places like Psalm 16, verse 11. Because he comes in and the psalmist says this, talking to God. He says, You make known to me the path of life. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence... There is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Forevermore. That, that, is, that is what pursuing holiness is really like. It's, it's having as much joy and pleasure as we can contain for as long as we can possibly contain it. And the beauty of the Gospel is that because God grants it, we can have those things forever. Forever. And so, so holiness is, is not a state of denial by not having thoughts or motivations or behaviors that are defiling. True holiness is a state of delight. Of delight. That, that the more true holiness we experience, the fuller our joy and the greater our pleasures. That's the way this works out. Holiness is an affection issue, not a behavior issue. This is emphasized by the fact that, that all the law of the prophets, all the law and all the, what the prophets say, bring us to one simple uh, instruction. That we would love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And then the second is equally important, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. So John Bloom says, His holiness looks most like the delight of true love. And if we love Jesus, we will keep His commandments, meaning that when our affections are really engaged, our behaviors naturally follow. Naturally follow. And so, so God is supremely holy. God is supremely happy. God is love and He is all light with no darkness and all that is good and all that brings true lasting joy and all that is truly satisfyingly, eternally pleasurable. All of those things come from Him. All of those things that we keep searching for and we will say, God, You're not providing this need in my life. He says it's only because You're not really happy in me. You're not. And so your heart goes elsewhere. And it looks for empty wells. And it looks for satisfaction that really will never sustain the appetite. And so, 
We are to be holy as He is holy, as 1 Peter 16, 1.16 says. And so, to pursue holiness, we must pursue our greatest happiness. Now, be careful. Be careful, because I don't want you walking out of here saying, well, I want to do whatever is happy, because that can get you in some trouble. And, and so, so this is, this is where many of our issues are revealed. Um, am I most happy in God? I'll just let that linger just for a second. Because answering that question, am I really most happy in God, brings up a deeper question of, of do I truly trust God? God, do I believe that God is telling me the truth when He says uh, He is the greatest source of experiencing joy? And if so, if so, then we are happy and motivated to pursue holy living. Okay, But if not, then we are willing to pursue idolatry or, or search for satisfaction uh, or, or, or the search of satisfying our desires regardless if they are lesser or not. Right? Have you ever satisfied yourself with a sin that you said, this is only going to hold me over until the next time? Because that's the way all sin works. So we, we can start wrapping this up. So there's this, there's a famous sin in the Bible, okay, where, where lust leads to murder. And, uh, and it's one of the greatest explanations to me of God's heart for us when, he wants, when He's telling us to live in a holy way. In fact, uh, some of you may have known, maybe you grew up in church and you know this story, uh, and I think it's, I think it's ironic that one of the greatest wor- lines of God's heart for us comes in a moment of correction and discipline. Uh, but, but the story is found in First Samuel uh, chapter uh, 11 and 12, where there's a, a guy named David, right? He's a pretty big player in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, King David, it says, at the springtime when kings went off to war, David hung back and he sent Joab, the commander of the army, and he stayed at the palace. Well, as he's walking around the palace, he looks outside and he sees a lady who is bathing. Her name is Bathsheba, which I think is really interesting too, right? Bath, get it? Bathe, bath. It's all, they both start with the letter B, Mark. That's what's interesting about it. Um, and so he sees her. And he says, I'm really interested in this lady. And then he is told, that's Bathsheba. She's married, David. And he says, cool, send her up. So they hang out. Um, and teenagers, here's what you need to know. All hanging out leads to making babies. So don't, do, don't hang out with anybody. Okay? Word gets back. Word gets back to David, uh, from Bathsheba to David. Hey, I'm pregnant. Okay? And so David says, okay, we have to figure this out because we, I can't be caught in this moment. And so he says, I'll tell you what, let's bring your husband home for a little bit. So the husband gets home and, and he says, hey, go wash up, man. Go see your wife. And Uriah says, no. He says, my guys are in the field. They're at war. Far be it from me for me to go into my house and enjoy the pleasures of my wife. So he refuses to go in. And so David says, oh man, okay. So, so the next night he says, let's throw a party and let's get Uriah drunk. And then he'll surely go see his wife. Nope. Because Uriah doesn't take part. 
And so finally he does this, David does this, concocts a plan, and it's crazy how lust can lead to murder when you don't expect it. He sends Uriah back to the front with a note and tells Joab, hey, put Uriah where the battle is most fierce. And when it rages, withdraw your men, leave Uriah there. And sure enough, Joab obeys his king. Uriah is dead. Word gets back. Hey, we lost a battle. Hey, but your servant Uriah has also died. And so, David, in this moment, thinks, safe. Nobody knows, except for me and Bathsheba. So I'm going to take Bathsheba. He marries her, right? Finds out she's pregnant. What? Oh, this is great news. And what David thought was hidden was very much exposed in the eyes of the Lord. And so God sends a prophet named Nathan. Now, I love Nathan. He's one of my favorite of the prophets for this one scene. And he comes in and he says, Hey, David, what's up? And David says, Not much, Nate. What's up with you? He goes, Let me tell you a story. And he says, There was a guy... There's two guys, one rich, one poor. And he said, the poor man had one ewe lamb, one little lamb, and he loved this lamb. And he cared for this lamb. And he let the lamb live in his house and he fed the lamb and just loved and lavished this lamb. And one day, the rich guy had a friend coming in and instead of taking a lamb from his field, he goes over, takes this poor man's lamb, slaughters it and serves it. And David gets outraged. He says, oh, let's go get that guy. And there's this beautiful moment of clarity that we find in the Word. And Nathan looks at him and he says, it's you. You you did this, man. And so he says this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Starting in verse 7, Now Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint him. Listen to this. This is, this is God pleading for David to understand his heart for him. He says, I've anointed you king over Israel, and I've delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And check out this line. And if this were too little, I would have added to you as much more. See, David, what more did you want? I'd given it to you. I'd given it to you, but what you've done has broken my heart. It has broken my heart. And David will live, if you follow his story, he will live in the consequence of this sin for the rest of his life. He will walk forgiven, but he will walk in the consequence of this action for the rest of his life. And from this point, it turns really some really painful moments. But what stuck me this week, and this has been in just playing on repeat over and over and over again as I think about holiness and our pursuit of it and those moments when we choose to serve lesser gods. That God looks at us and He says, I've given you all. And if that wasn't enough, I'd have given you even more. And I think when we understand God's heart 
and it's loving towards us. We can see how His ways are the best for us. And I think for too long we've thought, and, and I've been guilty of saying this, that when it comes to happiness and holiness, that God is concerned more with holiness. And, and I'm not so sure that's accurate anymore. I think if we're, if we're talking about it accurately, I, I don't know why one has to be in conflict with the other. So the question, does, does God want me happy or does He want me holy? And the answer to that is yes. Yes. John Piper says, Holiness is the newness of the human heart that no longer finds sin and self more desirable than God and goodness. More desirable than God and goodness. And so, but if... So we never forget how our holiness is attained. And we never forget why we're motivated to pursue living in such a way. And it's Jesus. Our great treasure. I'll read this last quote and then we'll start to dismiss. Our unholy sin disease has been given a cure in the cross. Now in pursuit of holiness, we we aim primarily at our affections, not primarily at our behaviors, for behaviors are symptomatic of the state of our affections. What is a delight to us ceases to be a duty to us. What is a delight to us ceases to be a duty for us. So God's call to move further up and further in in holiness is an invitation to joy, guys. Your fullest happiness ends up being the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we get to live in that. So we count that cost. And now here's where... Here's where this whole series kind of leads, and this is, it's born out of frustration. It's weird when I have a series that's born out of frustration. And, and really, it's this frustration of us living lives that are lesser than. It's being willing to walk in delusion of all is good with Jesus. He doesn't really mean I need to give him my whole heart. So I said this in week one. That there's three places we fall with Jesus. That the first place is we don't see Jesus as Savior and we don't see Him as Lord. This is the state of the unbeliever. Okay, They don't see their need to give Jesus their life because they don't see how great He, he truly is. And then you have the second group that they see Jesus as Savior but they don't acknowledge Him as Lord. And this is the danger of a lot of suburbanite Christianity. That, that I will do religious things from time to time, but yet when it comes to the pursuit of my life, I want to be part of the story of God, but I also want to write these continuing adventures of a lesser story. Okay? And then you have this third place that you fall with Jesus, where He is both honored as Savior and He is both honored as Lord. And Jesus says, the only way to really experience life with me is in this box. You'll never experience it in these other two. Never, 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 never. So don't walk around. And this is what I love, and this is the hard part. Jesus says, to live here, you count the cost. Because you don't frivolously just walk in and say, hey, I'm on your team today. And then tomorrow say, I'm taking the day off. It doesn't work that way. 
We only have so much time. We only have so much time. We only have so many breaths. So the question is, what are we making it worth? I love you guys. I appreciate you allowing me to yell at you for five weeks straight. Um, next week, we're going to open up Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to yell at you about something there too. Our desire this week is to love God. Bye. Please stand with me. So we wrap up. Let me make a couple things available. If you need prayer this morning, we long to pray with you. There will be a group of people over here. If you have never accepted Jesus into your life, we want to help you accept Jesus. We want to walk with you and celebrate with you and battle alongside you. And then thirdly, if you want to take some time and remember the price that Jesus paid through communion, we have some elements available. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You love us. We thank You that You care for us. And we thank You that You see more in us than we see in ourselves. It is a privilege to be called Your kids. And what we pray, Father, is that You would continue to open our eyes to the beauty of the Gospel. And that our actions would reflect Your great love and that our words would proclaim it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.